Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. This week's episode is really quite special and something that I personally have never seen been done before. I recorded this week's interview with Dr. Alex Fibyshenko in the operating room or theater as the Australians would say. So this is a true auditory experience. You'll hear the heart rate monitors, the suction and the handpiece in the background as Dr. Alex does an upper and lower arch all in four procedure. So I do hope you guys can stick it out with the suction noise. I did my best to try and clean it up, but nonetheless, this episode understandably doesn't have the same sound quality of your typical podcast. I got the opportunity to assist with retraction and suction during the interview, so definitely a unique experience. And uh, this is something that I'm hoping to give you guys the same feel of. So I hope you guys can imagine yourself standing in the operating room with us um, as you're listening to this podcast interview, which I think is, is a great experience. Dr. Alex Fibyshenko practices exclusively in oral implantology, dental facial surgery, and facial aesthetics. He's one of Australia's most respected implant surgeons, innovators, and educators. And Dr. Fibyshenko works in a surgical capacity with several dentists and specialists from around Australia. He is the founder of the All on Four Clinic and is a visiting faculty at the Linehart Continuing Education Program at NYU College of Dentistry. For you Australian listeners, Dr. Alex has kindly offered up two spots to his implant residency program running October 21st to the 23rd. We will be running a contest on Instagram, so be sure to check out my Instagram page at NewbieDentist for more details. This course is valued at almost $9,000 and is generally not available to Australian dentists, so this is truly an amazing opportunity to learn from one of Australia's best implant dentists. Good luck and I really hope to see the winners there at the event. This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Henry Shine. With over 60,000 products available from consumables, CAD CAM technology, lab equipment, CPD events, you can rely on them to be your trusted business partners every step of the way. As always, if you have been enjoying the Newbie Dentist podcast, please be sure to pass the episodes along to your friends, classmates, and colleagues. It would also mean a lot to me if you can head over to iTunes or the podcast app on your phone and give the show a five-star rating. And if you got some time, leave a review as well. Lastly, I've been working on a large collaborative project with my fellow podcast host and my good friend, Dr. David Keir. We have recently launched Foresight Live, which is a short format live interview series that we will be running on Instagram and Facebook. And we'll also be announcing some exciting news in the coming weeks regarding our upcoming projects. So please head over to Instagram at Foresight Dental. That's the number four, S-I-G-H-T Dental, or Facebook under the same name, or check us out on our website at foresightdental.com. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode with Dr. Alex Fibyshenko and enjoy the auditory experience. Hello and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high quality and high value content for all the newbie dentists out there. Your host, Dr. Omerizami. So this is a pretty unique and cool experience. We're doing a live podcast during all four surgery with Dr. Alex Vyshenko. Thank you so much yeah. for the opportunity to come here today and spend some time with you and, and do the interview. Sure. Um, what we do with the interview normally is just to kind of go back to the start and see you know, why you got into dentistry in the first place and then kind of just travel forward a little bit and, and just track your journey. So if you don't mind, just tell me like you know where you grew up and you know what kind of got you interested in dentistry in the first place. So yeah, dentistry was one of the things that um, 
Uh, I got into really funny enough. It was uh, well before uh, school time. Was when I was a little kid. I had this um, grandmother who had dentures, and one of the things she used to do when she used to be in front of the television is she used to fall asleep. Yeah. And as she fell asleep, her head kind of fell back, <laughs> and the dentures fell out of her mouth. And if you can imagine, like a seven, eight-year-old boy watching his grandmother with the dentures falling out of her mouth, it was quite traumatizing. So as I was growing up, I was kind of, uh, you know, very conscious of my grandmother's dentures, always looking in her mouth all the time. Yeah. And one of the things I was particularly interested in is, is there any other alternatives? Are there any other options uh, instead of dentures for people who lose their teeth? So that's kind of what got me into originally thinking about dentistry. And once, you know, obviously through school, once I finished school and uh, got into dental school, one of my primary goal was to achieve that. And there was not much in terms of, you know, postgraduate studies to learn about implants. Yeah. So really, uh, I did like throughout uni, I looked at all the research, everything that was coming up with, you know, with about implants and looked through all these studies and journals and all that sort of stuff, because that's all you could do at the time as a student, right? That's right. Um, and when I finished, you know, school, that was uh, pretty much what I was interested to do. So that's how I started pursuing so, it. So you kind of knew early on that you just wanted to get into implant dentistry as within the dental field. Yes, that was that, that, that was the reason I did dentistry. Okay, that was the primary reason. I was yeah. I wanted to make sure I wanted to look at alternatives for dentures. And that was like pretty early on in the implant. This is like mid nineties we're talking about, or I'm not. I'm not that young. <laughs> <but> <laughs> not no, it was. Uh, yeah, it was um, in the. Um, what year was that? Yeah, early nineties. Early nineties. So tell me about your kind of your first job out of school. First job was uh, right next door here. This uh, old little practice. Next door was uh, with my uh, my boss, my first boss, Dr. Miller. He was uh, my original mentor, yeah. uh, and he's he didn't do implants, of course. I mean, I, I did work also with um, with another clinician who was uh, who did some implant restorative work. Yeah, but uh, I remember um, actually we're talking about my first boss. I remember him uh, asked, you know, when I was joined him, and he gave me all these endos and. And crown and bridge work and all that sort of work to do, and I thought that's that's not what I did dentistry for. I yeah. did it because it, you know, I wanted to do implants. Yeah. So I told him I'm going to pursue, you know, this this implant education. I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to do all this uh, additional work, additional study. And he said, "Oh, what are you going to study?" He thought I was going to do some sort of postgraduate yeah. degree in endo or something like that. I said, "Oh, I'm going to do dental implants." And I remember him looking at me weirdly and saying, implants, like, surprisingly, that's not really for Burwood. Burwood is this suburb room, right? Yeah. So he goes, that's not really for Burwood. And the funny thing is that, uh, you know, after quite a few years down the track, after I bought him out, expanded the practice, built a whole brand new practice with uh, day procedure facilities and so on and so forth, he came to me and we did his own implants oh, yeah. <laughs> right here in the Burwood facility. So yeah. So that's um, that's the interesting thing about it. So 
So what's the, you know, the process of like going from taking some courses, doing your first implant to getting to the point now where you're obviously doing these advanced kind of procedures? What was that grow, uh, like learning curve right? like? Sorry, what was the question? So the question is, you know, when you, you, go, you, you head overseas, you're working just next door here. Yeah. You're doing a bit of endo, you're doing a bit of everything. You go and learn these implant procedures. Yeah. Uh, what's like the learning curve or the process of going from like, you know, single units to, to doing these like full mouth cases and all of course that you're doing now? Look, it was it, it was a there was a huge learning curve because you don't obviously learn anything about implants at uni, or at least not when I was uh, going through uni. Yeah. Well, there was there's no specialty in implants still today. So yeah. Still today, there's no specialty. There are obviously periodontists and oral surgeons and dentists yeah. who do implants. There are also prosthodontists and endodontists who who do implants. So there's no real specialty dedicated specifically and only to implants. And that is, I think, a little bit of a problem because dental implants is so different to anything else we do in dentistry. And yeah. uh, we can't treat bone and implants like we treat teeth. So, but a- anyway, there is, um, there is a big learning curve going from looking at teeth to looking at you know, implant-based solutions. Yeah. And, um, of course, you get, um, you get to learn... You try and learn from other people, from mentors. That's the best way to learn. Yeah. Because you can only learn so much from theory, from looking at books, looking at videos. You actually need to get in there and do some practical work with mentors. And uh, that is what I did. Exactly. So even after I went and did all my studies, I remember the first implant course that I did, they wouldn't take general dentists. Even though there's no specialty, they, yeah. they just wouldn't take general dentists to that first course. So when I filled up the application, I just left that out. Yeah. What I they, they, they just left it out and they just went uh, went along to the course yeah. um, and they assumed that I was uh, some sort of a specialist, a prosthodontist or something Yeah. So that was that was the time back. Now, obviously, there was nobody, there was no mentors per se, at least not in Australia, yeah. who people would want to show you. And I think part of that is also to do with the fact that a lot of the people who were doing implants at the time also didn't know all that much about implants. They were just yeah. shoving, you know, screws into bone and restoring them without having uh, a complete understanding how this is going to be affecting the patient in the long term. Yeah. So, because they don't have all the answers, I think sometimes it is um, difficult for them to allow people to just come in and watch the surgery. But I insisted with every referral, every case that I referred uh, to a specialist, to a periodontist or an old surgeon, I always insisted that I am involved in the case and then I attend the surgery. That's a great way to learn. This was my requirement for every case that I referred to anyone. It's a great strategy to learn, actually. Yeah, so that was the best way to learn. I've worked with uh, you know some great people, and uh, very fortunate with that. But uh, so today, there's a lot more training paths in terms of what you can do, how you can get into implants. You can do uh, some postgraduate studies overseas that give you a good introduction and. Um, and there are also mentors. There's a lot of mentors around now who yeah. can, uh, who can, you know, you can guide you through surgery and uh, what you do procedures. 
and you can learn that way. So that, that's the best way to learn. That's, that's one of the reasons also that I've set up because of my own struggles with uh, with the training part in yeah. the early days. Um, once I really got into it, um, I set up my own residency program yeah. so that uh, younger dentists can really you know, get into it and get a feel for it and uh, really understand the biology and the, and the surgical requirements, all the parameters to be able to achieve success with implants. Yeah, and is that, uh, is that one done mainly overseas? What the, yeah, residency program. Yeah. So the residency program that I do is uh, no, the clinic right here at the clinic. Yeah. Sorry, just uh, just gonna put those sure. those two implants in, and they can I have four point three by fifty. One of the things with full arch implants is that it's uh, it's difficult to know where to position them once you remove all the teeth. Yeah. And if you can keep some teeth as a reference, it kind of um, allows you to position it in the best spot. Now, this is critical because if you don't position them in the right spot, the patient's going to have issues with comfort. Yeah. So they won't be able to, they'll have a lumpy or bulky restoration. And if they have a lumpy or bulky restoration, they're also going to have issues uh, with uh, cleaning it. So, so we're doing immediate loading here. So the other parameter that apart from positioning the implant in the correct spot, it's also important that we get enough stability. Yeah. Because that is a, a required parameter when we do the immediate loading. So you can see that the access hole of the implant yeah. of the implant is going to be right where the old teeth used to be. Uh, so it's going to be a very uh, narrow kind of a restoration, which means it's going to be super comfortable for the patient. The other thing to look for is obviously restorative space. Yeah. So that's critical. That's important. You need to have enough restorative space. Every patient is different as to how much restorative space they need, so there's no real formula as to what kind of restorative space you need. Yeah. Because every patient is different. It depends on their smile line, right? So if they've got a really, really big smile and you can see right to the bottom of their gums and roots of their teeth, then you need to obviously make sure that your restoration is below that point. You mentioned that against the incisors of like the centrals there? Correct. So yeah. that's another so that's another um, guide. So the, the first guide is obviously the, the, the positioning of the implant to make sure that it's not uh, too buckle or too lingual. And the second reference is going to be for the restorative space. So if you keep the incisal edges, then you're able to determine the correct. Okay, so now we go on with the other, that was uh, the first two. Yeah. We'll just go on and do the next uh, couple of implants in the back. Just take out some of those loose teeth. This one is a bit stable, it's good. So talking about implant pathways in terms of getting from graduation to start placing some implants. Yeah. So you're saying now, you know, when you started, there wasn't as much resources available to to dentists and dental grads um, as there currently is. Well, there wasn't any for dentists, yeah. really. There was some restorative pathways at the time yeah. for dentists, but there was certainly no surgical pathways. So it's a bit of like a closed door, so you kind of had to sneak your way into it, so to speak. You have to find your own way yeah. to, to learn and to get the skills. And, um, you know, the skill of actually doing the surgery is only part of the of the whole thing. You need to have a skill in treatment planning. Yeah. I mean, that's that's probably the most difficult thing, and that's that comes really with experience and insight. Do you normally always freehand like this, or you have, like, stents and guides and stuff you use sometimes? Okay, so you tell me, watching this surgery... Yeah. 
is there a benefit in a guide or a stent in this surgery? The way that I'm doing it. Well, I think the way you did it with just leaving some of the teeth behind was pretty smart because you knew exactly how much you would lose. Correct, exactly. Yeah. So that, that's one of the things that you can do. Sometimes you can use stents, of course. The problem with using stents is uh, when you're doing implants, right? So like I said, implants is not, is not, they're not teeth. Yeah. Right, so you're doing with the surgical side, you're doing with bone biology. And one of the things that you need to be careful about is overheating the bone. And when you're using stents, sometimes the cooling doesn't get to the tip of the, oh, yeah. of, the of the drilling, right? And if the tip doesn't get low enough, sorry, if the, if the water, the cooling, doesn't cool the tip of the drill. Yeah. That's why I prefer not to use stents, but sometimes I do use them. You just have to be a lot more careful when... Um, uh, to make sure that the cooling is adequate at the tip of your drill. Uh, there are guided surgery procedures as well, as you can do. Yeah. So a lot of people are drawn to the guided surgery because they think that they can plan it all on the computer. More predictable. And, yeah. uh, well, no, no, I wouldn't say more predictable, but they think that they think it's more predictable. Yeah. They, they, they have that expectation that it's more predictable because they've done all the planning uh, on the computer. But what in fact happens is positioning the stand in the mouth, it is, uh, is difficult to position exactly the same way that, that uh, it was positioned originally when you found the pain. But if you're going to use the stand to actually put your implants in, yes. what's going to happen is the stand is, the stand has got these sleeves uh, to guide the implant into position. And those sleeves, apart from preventing the cooling, they also don't allow you to gauge the torque properly. Yes. So once you put the implant in and you take the stand out, Suddenly, you might realize that the torque is not exactly what it was when you put it in, when you put it in with the stent. And, uh, and that could affect your ability to connect the two to it. So, I've used many stents in the past. It was one of those learning curves and uh, one of those reasons why we moved into doing what we're doing today. So really, uh, people won't want to use a drawn into this guided surgery because they think it's going to be easier. They're, they're lacking the surgical skills, but they've got great computer skills. <laughs> so they think it's just going to naturally yeah. uh, transfer from the computer into the surgery without actually needing those surgical skills. But in fact, what you need is more surgical skills. So the more experienced people are going to be the ones that I would say are more suited to guided surgery protocol. <laughs> than the less, less experienced people. I'll get you to grab this. So you see the way that the surgery is done, we always keep the references. Yeah. And that's the only way to really achieve the most uh, predictable position being planned. Yeah, one of the things I've heard with like guided is if it doesn't go exactly as planned then you're kind of stuck a little bit because you haven't necessarily like planned how to do it without it or you may not have like skills or confidence to do it without the stents in place. So if you're able to do it freehand properly and then later, like you said, more experienced people do it, yeah, um, it's probably a little bit safer, better outcomes that way. I think uh, you need to know your anatomy, you need to know your surgery, you need to know how the bone behaves, you need to know how the implants behave. Uh, you need to learn all of those things before you ever do um, you know, guided surgery. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, if, if, if a person, uh, like if you're going to do guided surgery and you've got this background, then you're going to be able to look out for those required parameters in order to still achieve a successful outcome. But if you don't have those skills, 
then you really don't know what to look for and you think that your computer plan is going to save the day and yeah. it won't. Yep. So what would be your advice for like a new grad you know, a couple of years out working? They're doing some surgicals and stuff like that, but they're not necessarily into implants yet. Yeah. Uh, what's a good pathway you would recommend to kind of get going and start placing a few bit simple ones? But the first thing is uh, why is it? Why do you? You need to work out why you want to get into it. Yeah. Really, a uh, it's a different area altogether. It, it, yes, it is dentistry. It is definitely dentistry, but it's it's, it's not in a way. Yeah. It's, so if that's what you really want to do, then you really have to be passionate about it because it does take a lot of a lot of hours of training, a lot of perseverance, and. Uh, and you need to go through all that. You need to gain your experience gradually. Yeah. Uh, you can't start with the most complicated case. Uh, sometimes people say, but I don't have the cases that, that you've got. I mean, some of your cases look simple, and uh, you know, I, I don't get those cases. Well, you've got to be patient. You wait for the right case to be your first yeah. surgery. Case selection is critical. And uh, if you can select the right and the surgery goes well, then can I have an angle of button, please? Um, 30 degree correction. 3.5. Yeah, so if you, if you choose the right case, if you choose carefully, and then you've got, uh, a, then you're going to have a good experience with your surgery and you'll be motivated to do more. Yeah. But if you have a bad experience, you're going to just drop it and you're and not going to do it. That's a good question. Anymore. Yeah. So, what's, uh, I mean, looking back at your own time and your first few that you did, I'm sure. You know, there's a bit of a learning curve to get to where you are. So, how did you like? How did you cope with, or how did you like manage the uh, the stress of the first few procedures that maybe didn't go perfectly and things like that? You just have to plan them perfectly. Yeah. It's not about doing it perfectly in the first place. It's about planning it perfectly. Yeah. So, uh, once you get that down, um, then the next thing just follows. But uh, you just—I don't know. I guess you do get—you uh, do get a little bit. Well, you do get anxious before your first procedure that you that you do. Yeah. Um, but you try, you know, you try not to be too uh, too nervous about it, and yeah. just try to use your the skills, your plan, uh, the workflow that you've just planned, uh, and, and then stick to it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the well, one of my favorite lines of this movie, Bridge of Spies. Have you seen it? Which one? Bridge of Spies. No. You haven't seen it. Okay. So there's. Uh, uh, Tom Hanks is yeah. uh, is uh, is a lawyer, and he is interviewing this uh, this guy who's been charged with with um, spying and espionage. Yeah, and uh, and he's his lawyer, and he comes to his cell, and he reads out all the charges, and he says, "They're going to do this to you, and they're going to do that to you, and they're alleging this and that," and the guy is just sitting there with a blank look on his face. Yeah. And uh, Tom Hanks looks at him and goes, I'm telling you, they're going to do all these things to you and you don't look worried. Yeah. And the guy looks at him and he goes, would have helped. <laughs> so oh, that's, that's, that's kind of uh, <laughs> the way that uh, you got to look at these sorts of things. you got to be, you know, you got to be prepared. And yeah. I haven't talked about that one. Definitely need to be prepared. Um, but being, if, you, if you're too worried about it, you're obviously not prepared enough. Yeah. That's a great tip. Because I, I think it's that with most procedures, you'll do, you're like doing wisdom teeth, you do a few good ones, and then you get stuck doing one. And a lot of people kind of shy away, like you said, after that, yeah. and they don't keep at it. So yeah. I think having that mindset of being able to kind of have the confidence to be like, I'll do the next one again. You yeah. know, you had a bad experience. Like, 
that's really important to kind of growing. It's also having the right support around you. So it's good to have a mentor. It's good to have. Uh, it's good to know people who you can rely on, with you know, refer to, and uh, who are not going to judge or criticize you because obviously things can go wrong with uh, regardless of how experienced you are or how inexperienced you are. Yeah. So it's it, it's really important to have the right type of people who you can rely on to give you that advice yeah. and who are not going to be critical of your initial few attempts at, uh, at doing surgery. And, and if you can, uh, doing it with a mentor is going to be also one of those uh, uh, things that can help you out. Yeah. And what's a, okay, a good critical mass number? I think one thing that uh, personally I've been maybe not as you know motivated to get going is I'm not sure but you'll do the training, you do like one implant a month or something. Is that enough to actually keep developing your skills and, and maintaining and growing it? Like what's like a good well, number that's, to that's, You know, that is a great question. It goes back to the area of, uh, of specialization with implants. Yeah. I think if you don't do enough procedures, then it's very difficult to keep doing them well. Yeah. Right? You need to do enough procedures to do them well. Unless you choose only the simple ones yeah. uh, to keep doing. Uh, look, I'm not sure every time I reach a new number of implants that I've placed, I think that is the new critical mass. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when I did the first 100, I thought that 100 was was the critical mass. Yeah. Well, when I do, you know, when I did the first 1,000, I said, oh, no, 100 is definitely not enough. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to do at least 1,000 before you get to a point where you're... Um, were you skillful enough to continue, you know, to continue doing these procedures? Uh, so it keeps going up and up uh, every as you get more experienced. But you don't need to worry about that too much. The critical mass, actually, because every person is different as well. And I've seen people who have reached a really nice, really good level of skill, you know, after doing only a few hundred implants. Yeah. And I've also seen people who have done thousands and still are lacking the kind of skill that I think is important for long-term success with implants. So it does really take the type of person to um, to have that. It's not only the implant number. Yeah. It's like uh, experience is a good and a bad thing. So if you have you know a lot of experience and you're doing things really well, well that's good experience, right? Yeah. But if you've been doing uh, you know crown preps and you're really bad at it. And you've done, you know, twenty thousand crown preps. All you've been doing during those twenty thousand crown preps is reinforcing your poor skills. Yeah. <laughs> so, so experience can be both good and bad, and that can go, and that that also is true with implants. And I have seen a lot of people operate, a lot of great, great surgeons who really plan well and don't need a lot, and they wouldn't have needed a lot to get to the level uh, that they need to be at to be doing it well. Yeah. But I've also seen quite a few who are quite the opposite, like I said. Yeah. And in terms of like surgical skill progression, do you think it's, you know, start doing surgical extractions, like soccer preservation? Like, is it good to get those skills up before you actually start going with the implants? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so doing um, things like surgical extractions, you know, socket preservation, um, you know, going to wisdom teeth extraction, yeah. learning about the anatomy of the jaw, all those sorts of things, and, and doing it and see, visualizing it is important, not just looking at it on the x-ray, uh, finding it, but actually visualizing during surgery. Yeah. So I'll get you to grab that, please.
Um, that, that's, that's really important. Um, so what about your, like, tell me about your average week now. I know you're obviously doing a fair few of these procedures and stuff. Yeah. Um, what's the average, like, and obviously I can tell you're big on systems and things, but in terms of the planning side of it, how much time and due diligence does it take to, like, plan a case before you get to the point where you are today, like, doing the procedure? So the planning is, uh, I mean, I'm not the only one who's doing the planning. Yeah. So the planning starts with the restorative dentist. Yeah. Excuse me. And uh, and the restorative dentist would propose the plan. If the patient came directly to me, then I would uh, I would be acting as the restorative dentist doing a plan yeah. from that perspective. And then I would look at the, um, and obviously at the cone beam x-rays and the patient's medical history and any variables that can affect the outcome uh, because we need to take in all those into account when we plan a case. So all of those things that kind of take a long, they take a lot of time initially, yeah. but as you get more experience, they're kind of automatic. So you're instantly able to assess uh, a patient and sometimes they need to have additional tests done and so on and so forth. But, but you know how to get to that point where you've got a plan for the patient much quicker. Yeah. But uh, the planning, uh, these days I consult with the patient really for an hour, for a full hour. Yeah. With the, especially uh, most of my cases are quite large, large surgical cases. So I do consult with them for a full hour. Uh, we talk about all of the... Uh, all aspects of the treatment, what's involved with the treatment, what they can expect reasonably. Um, we also talk about the risks in great detail, like the types of risks that uh, that they can definitely uh, anticipate, like swelling, bruising, and all those things that everybody has. Yeah. Those are not risks, those are really consequences that happen with every case. Yeah. But then you also have to talk about those risks that are, uh, even though they might be rare, but they're possible and they can affect the outcome in quite a bad way. If, you, you know, if they have a failure or if they have um, uh, you know, nerve damage or numbness or anything like that, the patient needs to be aware of that and they need to accept that because the risk is out there. They're, they're the ones who take the risk. Yeah. So they need to understand what that risk is. And uh, so, so all that is covered within that first hour. Then once they decide to proceed with their treatment, it goes to the next level. Uh, then we talk to them about uh, about the process and uh, what's required of them and uh, what what um, you know what they're going to need to do and how they're going to need to clean the teeth and uh, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So we go over all those parameters, what they need to. Hold that for a second. Sorry, excuse me for a second. And uh, and all that is really covered by. Uh, by our treatment coordinator. And, and we do the planning of the aesthetics. So I'm involved to some degree with that, but not entirely. Yeah. Um, I'm involved more with the positioning of the teeth, not so much the color of them, and all that is being taken care of by our uh, laboratory team. Yeah. They, uh, they go through the color, the shape, if the patient wants the teeth to look completely straight or flat, if they want them to be natural, you know, imbricated, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So all of those things, the laboratory goes through with the patient uh, to choose the right um, aesthetics, I guess. And and then I just look at it 
or sometimes they go with like super white teeth. They choose like the whitest color they can get. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it seems like the more money they spend, the whiter the teeth have to be. Yeah. I mean, they want to be uh, brand new and shiny. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I counsel them about that to some degree because the laboratory and the nurses can counsel them all they want, but until the doctor says something, uh, that's when it really uh, counts. So I counsel them, but I try not to, you know, not to push them in any way because ultimately, if I'm going to tell them that I don't think you should have really white teeth, yeah. and then we go through the effort and the expense of producing a bridge with the color that we think it should be, yeah. that can be pretty expensive for you to try and fix later on. So, so I talk to them about it, but I don't push them into any color. And if they end up choosing white teeth, then this is what we're going to give them a little bit quicker. And what's a good progression in terms of sites in the mouth for single tooth? Like, what would you recommend starting off with? Um, You've got to look at the x-ray. Most, most of the time, the, um, the second premolar, first or second upper premolar would be a good site. Yeah. The, lower, the lowest tend to resorb a little bit more from the buccal aspect. Yeah. And uh, you tend to struggle a little bit more with the cortical bone in the lower. Yeah. Um, you tend to not being able to gauge the bone very well because of the difference between the cortical and the trabecular bone. Yeah. So the lower, I would say, is a little bit more difficult. In most cases, obviously, you'll get a case where you've got uh, where it's ideal for a first implant. Um, yeah. So I'd say the upper first or second premolar is really good. Yeah. I think the uh, central or lateral incisor are one of the most difficult. Uh, areas to work with, to work in. Yeah. Uh, to achieve predictable aesthetics there is difficult. It requires skills in many areas. Soft tissue surgery, obviously implant surgery, implant positioning, and also restoratively. Yeah. Right? To know how to correct the angle, to know what's available, the componentry that you can rely on, and things like that. So, so the upper anterior area is, uh, is more difficult. So a lot of the time you get you ever get questions from patients uh, about what implants you use. Yeah. Right. So that's that's we still get those questions, and we sometimes get people calling us that done so much research about what implants, and uh, and they've got this weird implants they found online <laughs> that uh, you know, and sometimes zirconia implants yeah. as well, all that sort. And one of the things that people don't realize, the patients don't realize that you need to teach them that it's really not about the implants. Yeah. It's always about the surgeon when it comes to surgical procedures. So, the implants themselves are like, uh, they're only a tool and accessory, right, that we use for, That's right. uh, to create us to, to achieve a particular result. But to get it right, it really takes a lot of skill. Uh, and experience to get to a point where the patient is actually going to be happy with the result. So we do spend a lot of time educating patients about what the important things are. Yeah. So just like we educate dentists about what's important, we also need to educate patients about what's important. Just like we teach them uh, how to clean their teeth and how to floss. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the treatment options uh, for Replacing the teeth, 
a tooth or, or a set of teeth, yeah. uh, it's important to teach them as well how to analyze and assess the situation and work out what is best for them. So it's not it's not about the implant components. It's about it's really about the surgeon and the treatment plan. Yeah. So what do you see as the future of like you know next? You know, one thing I've been hearing is obviously implants are like traditionally historically like really successful treatment. Uh, but past like twenty or so years, like you know, like I said, various skill levels of people have been placing implants, and so you start to see a little bit of an uptick in some complications and things like that. Um, where do you think the future is going to go in the next like five, ten years in terms of implant dentistry? Like, what changes do you foresee coming? Well, you're going to have more complications yeah. because you're going to have more implants. Yeah. So it's just naturally going to have more complications in terms of numbers, but. Uh, but in terms of, I think the focus of most implant companies over the next few years is really going to be in the area of education. Yeah. So they, th- there's going to be, I hope there's going to be systems in place to, or pathways created for people to be able to, um, to go into implants and do it correctly, yeah. do it right. Um, so that they're protected and the implant companies are protected and the patients are, are, are protected, they get a good uh, outcome. Yeah. So I think that's that's going to be the challenge. So there will be more dentists doing implants going forward? I think it's very difficult. I mean, I've, I've, I've been thinking that for a long time, but it's difficult because there is all these terms, right? Yeah. You've got periodontists uh, wanting to be the exclusive ones to do implants. You get oral surgeons wanting to be the exclusive ones to do implants. Prostodontists as well are very well positioned to be doing implant surgery. Yeah. And then you've got endodontists who <laughs> find that in some cases um, it is more predictable to position an implant than to do uh, root canal treatment, which yeah. is true in some cases. So you've got endodontists doing implants. So you've got multiple specialties of dentistry getting into implant treatment. Um, so it's going to be very difficult to say that uh, the dentists are best positioned to do so. Yeah. I think the dentists are well positioned. I don't think they're in the best position uh, to be doing implants. I think uh, regardless of the dentist or the specialty, it's not really about your kind of practice. It's about the type of person you are. Yeah. And it's about the level of training that you undertake. And, uh, and risk so tolerance and... <laughs> Stress tolerance and... <laughs> yeah, what did I say about stress? <laughs> I did say something about that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. But yes, stress needs to be managed. Yeah. And now a short ad break from our sponsors. Are you looking for a hands-on course to complement your current CPD plan? Henry Schein offers 150 CPD courses every year in all topics, including endodontics, orthodontics, surgery, infection control, and practice marketing. To view the current offerings, head over to henryshine.com.au to check out all the CPD courses available for the upcoming months. And as a special offer for my listeners, they are offering a 5% discount on all courses run by Henry Shine using the promo code PODCAST. Again, that's promo code PODCAST for a 5% discount on all CPD courses run by Henry Shine Australia. Head over there, check out their courses, and I hope to see you guys there. So what I'm doing here is um, just fine as I'm finalizing a closure here. Yeah. Um, I want to ensure that there is keratinized tissue around the implants. Yeah. Because what that what does the keratinized tissue do? This is more resilient. 
Yes, it's more resilient. It protects the implant yes. interface, the connection. It also makes it more easy or simpler for the patients to keep it clean because if tissue is very thin yeah. and it's not keratinized, a very thin biotype, then what happens? The patient has tenderness when they're trying to clean under there. They stop doing it, yeah. They stop doing it, so they don't do it, and then you get more inflamed, and then you get more problems. Yeah. Right? But if you've got keratinized tissue around the implant, then it's uh, it's not tender, and it's very simple for them to... I'll get you to swap now, just yeah. to grab that. And it's very simple for them to, um, to keep it clean because it doesn't cause them discomfort when they do it. Yeah. So this is, again, soft tissue surgery, and, and it all started... Uh, probably didn't notice it, but when I did the initial incision, the planning of that incision was in a way... Yeah, you left the uh, marginal... The marginal, yes, yeah. so I left the keratinized tissue yeah. because I wanted to make sure... Um, I, I, I started with the closure in mind. Yeah. Did you leave that molar in the back or take it out at the end? That's a good question. What do you think in this case? Well, what would be the advantage? I'll get you to just grab that. What would be the advantage? Can you think of any advantage of keeping that molar? You can add some stability for your upper plate, maybe contact point. Contact point, great. Yep. But is there a contact up the top? Look at the extra. Then go later on with the. Is the bridge going to be short? The bridge is not going to go all that far back. Okay. So there's not going to be a contact. Yeah. So it's not there's not much use keeping this tooth in this case. Yeah. But there is a lot of use keeping some teeth in some cases when you do have the contacts because what it gives you is some proprioception. Yeah. And when patients oh, yeah. have uh, and when patients have implant treatment, a lot of the time they lack the proprioception and uh, and they feel they, they don't know how hard they're biting. Yeah. And if that's the case, then it puts the prosthesis and the implants under a lot of pressure. Yeah. Because they don't really know how hard they're biting. If you're biting with a minimum amount of force, that can cause uh, problems with the implants, but it can also cause problems with the teeth, breakages and all that, and so on and so forth. So leaving some teeth for proprioception in full arch cases, in my view, is uh, one of the things that can really help patients tolerate the new prosthesis a lot better. And, uh, and control, yeah, control the loading. Yeah. But it's not always possible because a lot of the cases that come to us are terminal and uh, keeping diseased teeth, of course, is not, is not great. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the teeth are maybe a little bit, uh, they could have issues with them, but um, we, we can keep them. And I make that decision at the time of surgery and patients get really upset. <laughs> they come here to have all their teeth removed and yeah. have some old fours or some full arch restorations and what they end up is with some teeth left behind and they think that it was your mistake, you forgot. Yeah. Really? Is that what you think? <laughs> I forgot. But you know, that's that's that sort of thing. Yeah. And they always they, they always uh, tell the the girls or the staff, the nurses, right Tish? Mm, they yeah, tell them they forgot forgot you forgot to take out the back tooth. <laughs> So, so when, when possible, when I can foresee it in advance, obviously I talk to the patients about it. Yeah. Beforehand, I, I warn them about the fact that I might keep a tooth. And what's a, so in terms of, you know, one thing I've learned now I'm starting to work a little, a couple more years, and you start to see like the bigger picture in terms of long-term planning for the patient. Yeah. What's a good, I mean, 
considering if you can try and keep the dentition or prolong the patient before they get to this stage. What's like a good age do you think to commit to like an all four in terms of like longevity of the actual all four procedure? And What's a great question. So that, I think that I think that's a really good question. No, seriously. And your question was, what is a good age to get uh, to get all on four? When should people have it? Is that is that my that's right, yeah. correctly? Like yeah. if you have the option to try and prolong people a little bit to yeah. get them to a good age where you can confidently say like you'll have this and you'll yeah you know last you like the duration of your life type deal yeah would be a good age to kind of commit them to it. So um, the there is no such thing as when is a good age because we have patients who are very young and who uh, are struggling with really bad teeth, yeah. right? Whether they're sports people who have uh, lots of sugars and very young, you know, soft drinks and things like that, yeah. really messed up their teeth. Um, or if they're genetically predisposed to gum disease and they've got a lot of gum disease, yeah. or a combination of those, uh, or drug abuse or things like that. So patients go through a number of uh, different types of situations. Every patient is different. But one of the things that you want to be careful with is you want to do a plan for your patient that's going to be long-lasting. And yeah. if you're going to recommend implants for them, even a single implant, you want to know that the rest of the teeth are going to last. Yeah. And they're worth, the position of those teeth are in... Uh, they're positioned in a way that they really will give the patient long-term aesthetics and long-term function because if anything is missing in that area like if the teeth are not well positioned for long-term aesthetics and you decide to position a single implant to replace a lost tooth then really you're you're limiting what they can what they're going to be able to do in the future to fix those problems if they ever wanted to fix them yeah so you need to talk to your patients about that, about uh, teeth that are malpositioned or things like that, before you decide to put a single implant. I think if you want to be very conservative and there's no reason that the patient has no uh, reason to remove their teeth, well, you should be trying to preserve the teeth as long as possible uh, because there's nothing better than your natural teeth when they're good. Yeah. But, the other, but what you want to be careful of as well is that you don't prolong them to a point where there is a chance they're going to become diseased. For example, if the teeth have had multiple root canals yeah. and failed and <clears throat> the patient continues to have issues with failed root canals or, um, or, uh, or multiple root canals or multiple teeth, um, those types of things, what can actually, what you're doing by trying, by putting your, all your, by putting all your efforts into saving the teeth is that you're actually going to lose an opportunity to give them something that's very predictable yeah. earlier on. Because the longer you wait, the more the infections are going to destroy the bone, and then the less bone you're going to have, and then whatever you do for them is going to be less predictable. So you've got to really balance it out. Uh, obviously, people, when they, when they have healthy teeth, and, they, and you can foresee that there is the ability for them to keep those healthy teeth functionally, aesthetically, for the long term, you put all your effort into keeping them. But when you're not sure, then it's better to really either stay more conservative or yeah. be more definitive, not halfway. Mm -hmm. So more conservative would be do nothing or do 
not to put implants in, and more definitive would be doing a definitive treatment plan, yeah. like taking the teeth out and replacing them all together. Okay. Yeah. But anything in between is going to really ruin your chances for the future and uh, and not give the patient a, the result they want or a good outcome. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So in terms of sedation, yep. if you obviously like something like this, you would obviously do it you, but for like single tooth and things like that, what's your experience with it? Is it comfortable enough just to do it with vocal or do you always recommend some sort of sedation? Yeah. Okay, so one of the things with sedation is that um, the patients are still, uh, the reflexes are very much depressed. Yeah. Uh, but the airway is not protected. Yeah. So. As far as the safety goes, I think uh, doing these kinds of procedures, uh, I'll get you to hold that. Doing these kinds of procedures with so much water involved, like pooling and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think doing it under sedation is a little bit tricky. Um, we used to do that many years ago, but because of the issues that we've had with maintaining the airway, with safety and all that sort of stuff, yeah. we have just wanted to make sure I build something that we can deliver a general anesthetic safely. So this is what we're doing here. So I think if you're going to do a sedation, it's probably better to just do it with local anesthetic and maybe a relaxant like a Sazepam or something like that. Yeah. Um, the patient's super anxious. But otherwise, I would really highly recommend to look at the option of general anesthetic. Yeah. With a specialist anesthetist involved and uh, an anesthetic nurse uh, and so on and so forth, just to make sure that you're able to do your work well and quickly. Yeah. And uh, and the patient is safe and you don't have the issues with water going down the back of the throat, possibly choking them and mm -hmm. vomiting and all that sort of stuff. So. My preference is definitely a general anesthetic. Yeah, so even for like single tooth or? No, for a single tooth it's a local anesthetic because yeah, this local. is a very quick quick procedure. It's yeah. a very painless procedure with some local anesthetic. You do have people who are extremely anxious. Yeah. But if you're going to be doing a single implant, typically those are in patients who have a good hygiene and they're good patients because otherwise you wouldn't really, really be doing a single implant, right? You're not going to be doing a single implant in patients who are yeah. Dental phobics who come to you with a broken down dentition because they haven't attended the dentist. They, uh, so single tooth implants would be something that you'd be doing usually in patients who have good hygiene and have had a good dental experience, you would hope, yeah. most of them. Uh, so they wouldn't be anxious. So you want to need anything really, just a bit of local anesthetic, not yeah. a bit, enough, whatever you need. <laughs> uh, local anesthetic, I'll get you to hold this, please. Yeah, keep, keep going there. So just doing the local anesthetic is enough for those patients. Yeah. There's no need to have any kind of uh, sedation or general anesthetic for those patients. Okay. But if you needed to do any kind of sedation, then my preference, because you're dealing with, in, in the mouth, the airway yeah. is it's not being tip. protected, my preference is to do it properly with the general anesthetic rather than a... Than, than sedation and depress the reflexes and have water going down the back of the throat. Yeah. So you came in for a bit of an interview and you got a bit of a residency with it. Yeah, that's the both world. So what's your like general advice in terms of implant dentistry for the young grad? 
what would you be to get into it, don't get into it, to the personality, how do you kind of gauge your personality to see if you're right to do it? You need to be meticulous. Yeah. You need to be meticulous. So if you're usually a prostodontist, I think, are very well positioned to do blood surgery because they're so meticulous about, uh, you know, microns, not yeah. just millimeters. So. I think it's important that you need to be meticulous. Your standards have to be high. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think the prosthodontists are really well positioned for that. Also, their understanding of the restorative uh, the restorative component, I think, is great. Yeah. And that's the reason why dentists are also very well positioned uh, to be doing this. But um, you need to know, I think, if that's what you, what you want to do. It does take a lot of training. Yeah. It does take... You know, perseverance and uh, expense, a great expense. I mean, doing training is not is not cheap. Yeah, the big programs are quite expensive. The yeah. structured ones, like you're saying. Yeah, they're expensive programs, and um, so I think be prepared for that. And if you're ready to do it, then go all in. Go all in. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything in terms of practice setup or like if an associate? Like that you need to have in place before you do it? Because you don't want to do the course and come back and then... That one of the things you must do, when you do a course, you've got to be ready with your patient to be doing something on your patient immediately when you get back. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you have to do that. If you're not going to do that, then you're either not serious enough and don't waste your money. Yeah. you never get there because you just... You need to support your... Uh, Training with yeah. practice right very quickly. Yeah, yeah, it's a great tip. That's for any course. So, so many courses I go on, I come back and like all motivated and pumped up, and then like you don't do it for a week or two, and then it's all like gone to waste, kind of. Like. Yeah. So yeah, so I think uh, if you can get onto it quickly, that will be great. And and have a patient ready. So I, I would have a patient ready before you go. Yeah. Have the X-rays on your on your uh, on your phone, so you can talk to your to the speaker or the instructor. You can show them the X-ray and say, "Hey, this is going to be my first case. Yeah. I'm about to put an implant into there. This is my plan. Um, this is how I'm going to do it. What do you think? You know, those types of conversations you need to have with um, with with your mentors. That's awesome. So yeah. And that's a great, that's a really valuable point. Line up the cases before you go. Yeah. Because even, as a, even from like an investment side of things, at least you'll know you have a few cases when you get back. That's right. To get a bit of a return on your investment and your time and money. And yeah. The return on investment is not going to come for a while. Because yeah. the, uh, there is a lot involved in, in, in just making yourself proficient. Yeah. The amount of... Um, training that you really want to go through and uh, you, you really want to take, I mean, you're going to you're gonna cancel your patients if you want to go and attend surgeries, right? Yeah. So this is a sacrifice. You've got to be able to want to make that sacrifice of cancelling your day and yeah. then attending the surgery to watch your case being done. Yeah. That's a sacrifice. That means you're losing a whole day's of income. Yeah. That costs you a lot more than the course costs itself. You know, just losing a whole days of income. So if you if you're ready to do to make that those kinds of sacrifices, if you can afford to do so, and if you're passionate about it, then uh, like I said, there's no halfway. You gotta you gotta go all in. Yeah.
All right, so we're done. We're going to just uh, close off those little last few sutures here. Okay, so we covered a lot of topics there uh, during the interview process, uh, during the procedure. So I'm excited to kind of get that edited up and try to <laughs> remove yeah. as much of the suction noises and things like that as possible to get a, a nice interview because there's a lot of valuable things that you brought up, including mentorship, including like how to deal with stress, and including the, you know, starting from being a general dentist and getting into implants and how to stick to it and what type of procedures and mentors and stuff like that you kind of need to really get into it. So what I like to normally wrap up on and, and we'll just kind of line things up is do a bit of a rapid fire with you. Sure. Uh, so it's, it's a nice way to end it up. Okay. So uh, tell me, Alex, what's your, uh, what's your favorite pizza topping? Pizza topping? Uh, cheese. Cheese? <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite like band, artist, or musician? Bon Jovi, uh, I know it's old, but yeah. I'm, I'm not. I am that old actually. It is. It is what it is. <laughs> uh, I like uh, uh, what's her name, Billy Eilish lately. So, okay. Yeah. yeah, she's really good. Yeah. And I know it's you don't do much general dentistry, more it's mostly implants and things. But even yeah. looking back or in implant dentistry, what's like one procedure that makes you question your career choice in dentistry? Yeah. Look, I I I, I haven't done any of those general procedures for a long very time. long time. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but really everything that I do today, I just love it. Yeah. I love what I do, and it's just I wouldn't change a thing. That's yeah. great. That's a great thing to have. If you weren't in dentistry, what career would you be in? Architect. Architect. Okay. Yeah, photographer. Maybe. Yeah. Photography and architecture. And uh, what's your? I guess. Normally, ask what's your favorite tooth to work on. So, what's your favorite tooth to replace with an implant? Central incisor. Central incisor. Okay. It takes the most skill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for that. No uh, it was a great interview. We recorded almost two hours, so I'll try and trim it down and sure. try and make it coherent and, and fun for everyone. But I think a lot of people get a lot of cool value from it. And we got some good footage as well, which is uh, really Perfect. exciting. So really and our patients got top and bottom implants in two hours, eh? That, right. that I couldn't believe. <laughs> I was telling you about my boss in Canada and how, how they were doing it. But um, like I said, to see the, uh, you know, you do this every day almost. Yeah, so sure. To yeah. see the level of proficiency and, um, accuracy that you work with efficiency is super impressive so, perfect thank you appreciate it